They can never get away. I love those car chases. <laughs> if I'm ever just flipping through the channels and I come across one of those world's craziest police chases, I always stop. I always watch it. I love those stories about dumb criminals who do something you know, stupid and get themselves caught, like the, the guy who robbed a bank and wrote, give me all your money on the back of his own deposit slip. Or the burglar who left his cell phone at the scene of the crime. But there was a story last year out of Cleveland, Ohio, that just takes the cake. I mean, um, listen to this. <clears throat> a man on the run tried to hide from police by breaking into a woman's prison overnight. Garfield Heights police said they tried to stop a Pontiac G6 for failure to signal during a turn. After that, the story took a turn. According to police reports, Ricky Flowers, 20, Gabriel Houston, 20, Mitchell Byers, 19, and Lamar Sullins, 19. Are you detecting a trend here? Um, led officers on a chase through several cities at speeds upwards of uh, 90 miles an hour. During the chase, the driver lost control of the car several times and spun out at least three times. The chase finally ended at the women's prison on East 30th Street and Broadway Avenue. Byers and Sullivan fled on foot but were arrested almost immediately. Houston and Flowers started climbing the prison's razor wire fence. Newburgh Heights police shot Houston with a taser gun. Uh, Flowers made it to the other side but found himself trapped inside the prison walls. Flower, uh, EMS took Flowers to the hospital after he shredded his arm on the razor fence. Police said he needed 36 staples and stitches. All four men were in custody, facing several charges, and more are coming. The driver of the car told police he didn't pull over because he had a suspended license and he didn't want his mom to find out he was driving the car. <laughs> what a bunch of dummies. But while we get a kick at their expense, guess what? We're just like them. Jesus lived, he died, he rose again to set us free. In fact, according to Luke 4, 18, Jesus came to release the captives and set the prisoners free. He came to break us free. And, and listen to this verse, John 8, 36. says, if the Son sets you free, you are truly free. Now, you know what I like about that? I like the emphasis on free. Not just free, truly free. Really free. Some translations say free indeed. I love that. Because that says to me that a person can be free, but another person who's rightly related to Jesus can be truly free. Free indeed. That there's a level of freedom that, that just about anybody can get to. But Someone who gets into a relationship with Jesus can experience what it means to be truly free. It's freedom at the next level. Jesus came to set the captives free. He came to release the oppressed to make us truly free. And instead of taking Jesus up on his offer, you know what we do? We take off on a high-speed chase away from Jesus as fast as we can go. We will climb right back into prison, right back into bondage to do that. So many people, maybe some people here today, feel like they can never be what God wants them to be. 
that they can never do with their life what God wants them to do because of something in their past. Many of us are full of guilt and shame and regret, and it holds us down. It holds us back. That's why I'm excited about today. Because Jesus came to break us free of the bondage of our past. Today could be your day of freedom. That's why I'm excited about this series. The next three weeks, we're going to be talking about breaking free, escaping from a life of bondage. Today, we're going to talk about breaking free of our past. And next week, we're going to talk about breaking free of addiction and besetting sins, those things we just can't seem to shake off. And in two weeks from now, and this will probably be my favorite, we're going to talk about breaking free from religion. So if you're here this morning and you say, well, you know, I came because it's Easter, but I'm really not the religious kind of person, guess what? You need to be here two weeks from now. But this morning, I want us to look at the story of a woman whose painful past was just dumped out in the open for everybody to see and how Jesus responded. It's found in John chapter 8. If you've got a Bible with you this morning, it's the fourth book in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you get to Acts or Romans, you've gone too far. Go back to the left a few pages. We're going to start out in John chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. So get the picture. Jesus is in the temple teaching. A crowd of people have, have come around him as they often did when he was teaching. And suddenly there's a commotion. It's off in the distance at first. There are angry voices, perhaps shouts. There's maybe the sound of crying or pleading. And that commotion gets louder and it draws closer until eventually uh, the religious leaders walk right up in front of the crowd, right up to Jesus, and, and drag this woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in 2,000 years, some things haven't changed all that much. And I believe I'm correct uh, in thinking that when it comes to adultery, there's got to be two people involved. So where's her partner? Where's the guy at? I mean, she's all by herself. Why isn't he there? Did he, did he jump out the window and run away? Where is he? It doesn't matter, really. Because the, the religious leaders who brought this woman to Jesus, they really weren't concerned about the adultery. They were really were not interested in justice. She's just a pawn. She's bait to catch a bigger fish. In fact, if you go back and read John chapter 7, you'll find out that these religious leaders are very upset with Jesus. They just don't like him very much, and they've argued with him in chapter 7. In fact, they, they've tried to have him arrested in chapter 7, but they had no real cause, and so the temple guard would not arrest him. And so they're looking for a reason. We pick back up in verse 4. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Verse 6 just lays, it, just lays it out in the open. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. They think they're pretty smart. 
And you know what? There's a, it's not a bad move. It's not a bad risk on their part. I mean, Jesus really is kind of trapped if he does what, you know, what they think will logically follow next. I mean, if Jesus says, no, 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 don't stone her, let her go, then the people who've been following him, who are Jews, who know the law, are going to say, he disregards the law of Moses. He must not be the prophet that we thought he was. He must not be, be worthy of us following him if he can just wipe away the law like that. But if Jesus says, yes, stone her, then he violates Roman law. See, the Romans had made it illegal for the Jews to carry out executions under Roman jurisdiction without their express permission. So Jesus certainly seems to be trapped, right? I mean, if he says no, the people are going to forsake him. The crowd that follows him and listens to his teaching, they're going to go away. If Jesus says yes, then Rome's going to step in and arrest him and possibly execute him. That would get him out of the religious leader's hair. They think they've got Jesus just where they want him, and they're proud of themselves. I mean, there are attaboys and high fives all around. They have done it. We've been trying for three years. We've got it done finally. And the tension is building in the crowd. You know how that is, right? Remember when we were back in school and, and all of a sudden you'd hear someone yell, fight, fight! And you'd drop what you were doing and take off at a run to get there because you knew that you know, ordinarily they're over before you actually get there to see the fight, right? Tension is building in the crowd. People are beginning to sense that something's going to happen. And it does in the last part of verse 6. John says... Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. What? What did he write? We don't know. We don't know why he did that. We don't know what he wrote. Maybe he was just, you know, scratching in the dirt like a kid would do with a stick. Maybe in a way he's, he's turning his back on those religious leaders and their, their legalism and their treachery. Maybe he did it because he knows the hearts of the people there. And it hurts him. It burdens him. Maybe it was like when we were in the car with our kids, driving along, and, and they're fighting. I know that most of you, with your perfect children, have never had this experience, but <laughs> it is one with which I am very familiar. They're bickering and they're poking each other and they're, he touched me and he's on my side and they're just, he looked at me, he's breathing the same air. They're just provoking each other and you know, it, it, it gets on your nerves, but you kind of think it'll stop. You're kind of like, you know, surely they will run out of steam, but they don't. They're kids. That's what that means. They carry it on and on and on and on. And finally we just go, hey, stop, 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 stop. That's what I do. <laughs> and then you know what happens? It wasn't me. He started it. No, I, he started it. I did not. Yes, you did. Stop. Just stop. It's all of you. You're all guilty. Maybe what Jesus was writing made it very clear. You're all guilty. 
I mean, you dragged this woman in here, but it's all of you. We don't know what he wrote. But what he says is very clear. In verse 7, John 8, 7, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And everybody freezes. And nobody throws a stone. Let him who has never sinned throw the first stone. Who says that? You see, even in moments when our hearts are hard, we know how sinful we really are. Even 2,000 years after that day, we know there's not a person in this room without sin in their life. Verse 8 says, he stooped down again and, and wrote in the dust. Once again, we're not told what he wrote. But I'm going to tell you, I see grace and mercy at work there. Even for those hard-hearted religious leaders. Do, do you realize how easy it would have been for Jesus to step over into the role of judge at that point? I mean, just call people out. Hey, uh, Johnson, they're in the back. We're talking about sin, and yours is unbelievable. Why don't you just drop that rock and get out of here? Just get out of here. That's what I would do. That's what you would do too. Jesus is the only one qualified to throw a rock. But he doesn't do it. And the result in, in verse 9 is this. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one. Beginning with the oldest, theoretically the one with the most sin, right? Until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Jesus has turned the mirror around on them. And what causes them to walk away is the realization that Jesus has brought them to almost without saying anything. He said very little. But he's caused them to realize this that their sin is at least equal to that of the person they are accusing. And friends, that is always the case. We do best to remember that before we start pointing the finger of accusation anywhere but here. Verse 10, then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Again, Jesus doesn't step into the role of judge. He, he, he could have. Again, he could have, but he doesn't. He steps into the role of savior. He steps into the role of friend. Again, the only one qualified to pick up a rock, to throw a rock, doesn't even touch one. 
Because in a little while, he's going to go to the cross as payment for the sin that dragged her in here. He's going to pay for that. He's going to cover that. He's going to take care of that. And so Jesus says those five incredible words. Go and sin no more. What an amazing lesson there is about the character of God in those five words. Go and sin no more. Jesus is focused on her future, not on her past. He doesn't seize that moment to lecture her on how terrible and destructive adultery is. He just says to her, put your sin behind you. You're forgiven. Now go and live like it. He's not concerned with who she was or what she'd done or where she came from. He's concerned about what she can become. And before any legalists start to wonder if I think Jesus is soft on sin, if I teach that he overlooks it, notice again, Jesus says, you have sinned. You've done wrong. But he doesn't stop there. He never does. He says, I'm going to pay for what you did. You matter to me. I will not give up on you. I value you. I value your life. Don't let it end here. Not like this. In that moment, Jesus has pulled back the curtain to show us what God is like. Now, I want us all to do something. You can close your eyes if you want to. But I want to, to imagine in your mind, in your mind, I, I want you to see a screen. And I want you to project your past onto that screen. I mean, just all of the ways that you have messed up, all the ways that you have blown it, all the ways that you have sinned. I'm talking about the things that, that when you think about them, produce in you guilt and shame. <laughs> oh, great. Thanks a lot, Pastor Scott. Happy Easter to you, too. Hey, do you want to run over the Easter bunny on your way home today? Just, just, just help me with that. Do that. Okay, focus on that for a moment. And now, in this moment, we have some options. We can deny all of it. Pretend it, doesn't hap it never happened, that it doesn't exist. But we've got to know that doing that can only lead us to a cold, hardened heart and a, a distance and indifference between us and God. But we can't deny it if we want to. And of course, we can choose to dwell on it. Just to think about it all the time. Focus on it. Think about how, how, how dumb we are and how prone to mistakes we are and, and what a low-life worm we are. But here's the thing. The end result for both of those options is the same. Both of those options leave us spiritually paralyzed and enslaved and in bondage. We can deny it or we can dwell on it, but either way, we end up climbing the fence, getting torn apart by the razor wire, and in prison. But there's another option, and this is where the freedom comes from. We can take it to Jesus. You didn't hear me. 
we can take it to Jesus. Well, I'm glad the people needed to hear that weren't here. We'd, be a, we'd have a shouting parade up and down uh, 18 here, out here. Take it to Jesus. Place it at his feet. Leave it there. And what does Jesus do with it? It is two things. First of all, Jesus replaces our guilt with his grace. He replaces our guilt with his grace. He wants to take our guilt and replace it with his unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. He wants to take our guilt and replace it with his no-strings-attached love and total forgiveness that we don't deserve and that we cannot earn. It is a totally free gift. I, I'm not going, I'm, I promise you, I'm not going to embarrass you. But if you are here today for the very first time, will you raise your hand, please? If you're here today for the very first time. Okay. I got something for you. This is for you. You're welcome. Now listen, you didn't earn that. You don't deserve that. It's a free gift. I don't want you to put that in the offering. That's yours. It's a free gift. Okay? You got it? That's grace. That's grace. Had I seen you before a few minutes ago? Don't know him. Don't know anything about him. That's grace. Now, don't you know, after church, <laughs> some of the old timers are going to corner me. <laughs> some of the regular folks are going to come up to me and go, hey, I've been coming here for a year. <laughs> or I've been here for 10 years. Or I've been here for 25 years. I got nothing. That's because you can't earn it. You can't earn it. What if I said, raise your hand if you've been here six months or more? Raise your hand if you've been here six months or more. Raise my Okay. Uh, I've got a nickel I'd like to give you. You don't deserve it. <laughs> you didn't earn it, but I want to give it to you. But that's not a very good illustration of grace because I'd be giving you something of very little value. Right? I mean, something you could get on your own. Seriously, when everybody leaves, you could crawl around on the floor and get more than that. I, I know, I do it every week. But there's no value in that. And grace has enormous value. Huge value. Immense value. That's why when I hear people talk about cheap grace, boy, it makes my blood boil. Grace is never cheap. It didn't cost us anything, but it cost God everything. It has untold, uncalculable value. And we don't deserve it. And God says, here's the deal. I want to come in and I want to take that guilt that is overwhelming you and I want to overwhelm you with love and forgiveness and erase all that guilt. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 14 says, When we have grace, sin is no longer our master. For we no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, instead we live under the freedom of God's grace. God's grace sets us free. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was saying, you deserve to be here. But I'm here in your place. I'm going to die in your place because I love you and I don't want you to die. I want a relationship with you, so I'm going to pay for it so that I can look at you and say, not guilty. He wants to take our guilt and give us his grace. And then secondly, Jesus replaces our shame with salvation. He replaces our shame with salvation. Listen, guilt convinces me of this. I've done wrong. I know that. I'm guilty. But then shame comes in. And shame says, you don't have any value. You're, you're not worth anything. Who could love you? Who could respect you? Who could accept you? You're useless and unwanted. Only, you know, it speaks using my voice, using first-person pronouns. Some of you can relate to that because you walked into church this morning feeling shame. Somebody invited you, and, and you think this place is filled with holy people who've got it all together. Can, just pardon me while I laugh at that thought, you will, just for a moment. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth, folks. We don't have it all together. Some of us don't even know where it is. But we're all on a journey. Some of you come in here and think, I don't belong here. Where there's guilt, there's shame. And Jesus says, I want to take that shame and I want to give you salvation. Now, the easiest way for us to picture salvation is to think about the concept of adoption. It's to, it's to think about someone from outside of a family being brought into that family and being loved and accepted and giving a home, given a home, being made part of that family, becoming in every way from legal to emotional to spiritual part of that family. When God adopts us into his family, all we have to do is say, yes, I want to be a part. And he brings us into his family, and he makes us his children. In every movie with an orphanage in it, from Annie to Stuart Little, there's, there's always that scene where the potential parents come in, and they look over the children in the orphanage, kind of size them up. And typically, they don't want the older kids. Right? They don't want the ones that have been there a while, or the kids who aren't as cute, maybe, or the kids with a past, the kids with a disability of some sort. Except that one family who's able to see beyond all that and, and is willing to take a chance on a previously unwanted child. And you know, they embrace, and the music swells, and we all cry. And the end, everyone lives happily ever after. When God adopts us into his family, it's a picture of salvation. We don't deserve it. We're scarred and damaged and disabled. 
But here's the difference. He never sizes us up. He doesn't care about our past. He doesn't look at how ugly we are. And instead of the child hoping the parents will choose them, it's the loving father waiting for us to choose him. Salvation is when we say, yes, Lord, I want to be in your family. I want a relationship with you. And he adopts us into his family. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes that God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and I love this. It gave him great pleasure. Think about what Jesus went through so that we could be adopted into God's family and hear the truth of God's word that says, it gave him great pleasure. So how do we respond to all this? To this revelation of what God is like and, and how Jesus wants to come into our lives and set us free. Well, I, I pondered on that for a bit. That's southern for I thought about it a while. And I could really only think of one thing I wanted to challenge us all to do. Pursue Jesus. Pursue Jesus. That's it. That's what will break us free. When we see and experience just what we've talked about here today, the only thing left for us to do is go after Jesus. Don't don't run the other way. Don't embark on the high-speed chase. Don't keep running. Pursue Jesus. Now, I realize we're all at different places in our spiritual journey, and some of you are just checking this thing out. You've been invited by someone. It's your first time here, and you're here and pursue Jesus, and you're thinking, hey, hey, hold on, slow down. But I want to challenge you. Pursue Jesus. And understand, I'm not talking about church, and I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about you making a commitment to yourself to find out more about who Jesus is, and we will do anything we have to do to help you. Pursue Him. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, can I, can I give you a little advice on how to help your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers, your loved ones? Can I, can I give you some advice on how to help them pursue Jesus? Here's the first thing we can do. Drop the rocks. Drop the rocks. Quit throwing rocks at them. <laughs> when will we stop being shocked and offended when sinners sin? That's what they do. We're so quick to condemn and so, so slow to show compassion. Folks, it is possible to love a person without loving the sin in their life. That doesn't mean that, that you're giving them a license to sin or that you're accepting their sin or you're saying their sin is okay. You can love someone without accepting their sin. We got the whole thing messed up. We see somebody whose lifestyle is different from ours, you know, who makes choices we wouldn't make and does things we wouldn't do and And sometimes maybe we even ask ourselves, well, what would Jesus do? And from the way we act, the only thing I can conclude is that we think Jesus would be angry with them and throw rocks at them. Because that's what we do. 
if we drop the rocks, then our hands are free to point people to Jesus. We need to work on being less tolerant of the sin that's in our own lives and more tolerant of other people. Just drop the rock. And here's the second thing. Can help us help a friend who doesn't know Jesus. Quit the quits. You say, what? Quit the quits. Quit making this thing about quitting something. How's that? Oh, if, if only they would stop smoking. Oh, if you would just stop drinking. We think it's about quitting. Hey, following Jesus is not about quitting. Some of us grew up in churches with all these rules. You can do this or you can't do that. You can go here, you can't go there. You can wear this, you can't wear that. It was all about quitting something. You know what? That's like driving a car with the brake instead of the steering wheel. That's exactly what it is. When we allow Jesus to fully invade our life and fill us with his Holy Spirit, whatever checklist we've got suddenly becomes a whole lot less important. We, we don't grow up to become mature followers of Christ because of the things that we quit. That's why so many Christians are living in bondage today. In bondage to their past, full of guilt and shame. Because they're still living under somebody's checklist. They're still trying to quit the things somebody told them they had to quit if they were going to be a good Christian. Grace doesn't put us under that kind of bondage. Grace sets us free from it. Well, I know you didn't like that, so we go on. And I'll wrap things up this morning with two verses that pretty much summarize everything that we've talked about. And one of them is, is very familiar uh, to us. I guess probably the most well-known verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16. But, but this morning I want to make sure we see verse 17 as well. And it says this in John 3.16 and 17, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent His Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. And then Romans 8.1 says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And what I want us to do is take the word believe from John 3.16 and the word belong from Romans 8.1. And together they form a basic Bible truth. If you believe, you belong. If you believe, you belong. That's what a Christian is. We believe that Jesus Christ hung on the cross as the payment for our sins. He took a beating so we don't have to. We can stop beating ourselves up for the things in our past. Jesus already died for that. And then Jesus was taken off of that cross and placed in a tomb. And three days later, he came back to life, resurrected to prove that he was God, to prove his power over sin and death. And if you believe that, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone and acknowledge him as your Savior and Lord, then you belong. If you believe, you belong. That's what salvation is. So my question to you is, is there a moment in your past that you can point to 
when you personally said yes to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? If not, why don't you do it today? Why don't you take care of that right now? Right here. It's the only way you're ever going to be set free from the prison of your past. He wants to take your guilt and give you His grace. He wants to take your shame and give you salvation. Will you let Him? Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.